0: We are in Hebrews 11 and today we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 22. Today's message is going to be a little different because there's another reason this day is special and that is it is Lord's Supper Sunday. We do this once a quarter where we observe communion. Lots of Christian traditions do it once a week or once a month. We do it once a quarter Uh, and today the sermon is going to be a little different. It might be just a, a tad shorter. Don't count on that, but it might be, but the main thing is it's going to be It's going to be sort of a preview for the Lord's Supper, preparing our hearts for this important observance. And so I'm going to ask you to do a little more work than usual. Usually I do all the work, and you're just sort of sitting there passively listening, not complaining. This is what I want to do. This is what I love doing. But today I'm going to ask you, instead of just absorbing things with your brain, I'm going to ask you to engage your heart. I'm going to ask you a couple of pretty tough questions to deal with, and I really want you to deal with them so that you can be ready for what lies ahead. And I've been praying for this day because I really think this could be a day that sets some people free. I don't know who they are. The Holy Spirit does. But I hope you will participate in this with all your heart. So here's where I want to start. And there's a significant number of teenagers in the room right now. There's also an even more significant number of people who are former teenagers, right? Like me. And if you can think back to those years... Or if you're already there, just think about where you are right now. Interesting thing about the teenage years of your life is there's this slow, almost imperceptible, but definitely real starting to separate from your parents emotionally. And I wanna say first off that that's a healthy thing that that God intends for us not to be children our whole lives, ladies. If you're married to a man who is a perpetual child, that's you know that's your problem. But uh, for most of us, we reach a point where we're okay. It's time for me to be an adult, and that's part of that process. And it can it can manifest as good things like. I'm dreaming of what it's going to be like when I'm out on my own. It can manifest as kind of irritation with one another. It can even manifest as real rebellion and anger and division in the home. So uh, think about how before you're a teenager or when you hit those teenage years, up to then, your whole life has been lived in a sense of, I know I can count on my parents. Now, assuming you had the kind of parents I had, I, I realize some of you may not have, but if you had good parents who did their best not perfect, but did their best, then you knew two things were true. My mom and dad know more than I do, and they love me. So even though childhood is a really scary time, anybody who says, I'd love to go back to childhood its such a simple time, you're forgetting. There's bullies on the playground. There's monsters under the bed. I mean, the whole world, it's just a scary time of life, but you can count on the facts that your mom and dad are looking out for you. You're safe with them even when they tell you to do things you don't want to do like eat your broccoli or go to school. You know it's probably for your best because mom and dad say so. And then you hit those teenage years and you start to believe, you know what? Maybe they don't know as much as I thought they did. Maybe maybe I'm as smart as they are. Maybe I even know some things they don't. I'm not even sure at that point that they really love me as I thought as much as I thought they did in the past because for instance, why are they making me do algebra homework every night as soon as I get home from school? I mean, I've tried to tell them that I can do it first thing in the morning before I go to school. What they don't know is that means I'm going to copy my friend's work at the school before I get But, But, you know, they don't need to worry about that. And and by the way, I'm not going to be a rocket scientist. What do I need algebra for? I know two plus two. Isn't that enough? And yet they make me do it. And you wonder why. And you think they're wrong. Then it gets even worse than that. For some of you, you can think back to the major conflict you had with your parents. Maybe you fell in love. Maybe you had met your absolute soulmate at the age of 15 or 16 or 17, and your mom and dad didn't approve. And he said, no, 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 you're going to have to break off this relationship. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, Derek, who's 25 and and dropped out of school in eighth grade, is probably not the one for you. Okay. You know, Molly, who has black fingernails and, and, and worships Satan, is probably not the one I want you to marry. And yet you're torn up. You feel like, they must hate me. They, they can't love me because they, they're taking this thing away from me. I'm going to die alone and unhappy, and I hope it's real soon so you can feel guilty. Okay? That's, that's how you feel at this stage. And I know I'm making light of it, but at the time, it's really hard. It's really difficult for both sides. And, and the problem, I think the root problem in that conflict is that we as teenagers think, hey, if you love me, you're going to want me to be happy. Isn't that the definition of love, wanting someone to be happy? And, and, and I can tell you, I'm sitting here telling you what would make me happy. What would make me happy is to not have to do my algebra homework. What would make me happy is to be able to run away with, with this guy or this girl and, and, and live happily ever after. You don't know. I'm telling you what would make me happy. And your mom and dad are trying to tell you, listen, we do want you to be happy. This is why we break our backs providing for you, but... Our main goal is not your short-term happiness. Our main goal is to set you up for a long-term, successful, and abundant life. And especially if if your parents are Christians, they're thinking, we're trying to teach you principles that will enable you to choose God's path on the long term. Even though some of those choices we're making on your behalf result in a little less short-term happiness, or, or taking away some things that might bring you a little short-term burst of happiness in and, 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 and favor of something that's going to be good for you in the long term. Now, if you've ever been to church, you know where I'm going with this, right? You don't have to go to seminary to know this part of preaching. You and I are like teenagers in the sight of God, and God is our Father. And we get frustrated with God. It's okay, we're in church, don't lie anymore. We know, we get frustrated with God because we think we know what would make us happy. And the word of God says that he loves us. So why isn't he giving us these things that make us happy? Why aren't we just showered with the things we've asked for consistently? Instead, we get little things that make us happy here and there, but why don't we get all of them? And God says, because I have a higher goal. Sure, I want you to be happy. That's why every good thing, literally every good thing you have or ever experience is a gift from me. But my ultimate goal is not your short-term happiness. My ultimate goal is your redemption. Redemption is the, go- is the goal of God in every relationship He has. Now, redemption is a very, very old word. And we use it today to mean something economic, but in the ancient world, it referred to when you, when you won the freedom of a slave when you bought the freedom of a slave and set them free, that was redemption. There's this beautiful story in the book of Hosea about the, the preacher Hosea and he has an unfaithful wife and he goes to the man who now owns her and he buys her back. He says, I don't care that you've been unfaithful to me. I don't care that you've broken my heart. I don't care that you've made a fool of me in front of all, the whole society. I am buying you back and you are my wife again. And that's the picture God wants us to see, that that's what He's trying to do for us. That's the whole message of Christianity. And it's not just the moment you get saved, it's the rest of your life trying to redeem you and me from our bondage to sin. The sins that weigh us down and that hold us back, He wants to win us back from those and give us freedom. And so today, as we look through these four stories in Hebrews 11, you're going to see that they all relate to that subject of redemption. But first, I want us to talk for just a minute about the Lord's Supper. So hopefully you got one of these little kits. I want you to be able to take this, even if you're not a member of this church. We celebrate open communion here. But in a moment, I'm going to ask you to pull out the little piece of bread that's kind of rattling around in there, and I want you to hold it between your thumb and your forefinger And I just want you to think about what it means. As Christians, we know that that bread, it's just an ordinary piece of bread, but what it refers to is the body of of Jesus. And how many times do we take the Lord's Supper and we never stop to realize what an incredible miracle it is that God took on human flesh in the form of Jesus Christ? Who would have known that God would do that? And why did He do it? So that He would have something to lay down in our place. That's the message of the gospel. And I want you to think about how ironic it is, sadly ironic, that whereas God, the immaterial, became physical for us, we take things that are physical and turn them into God. Things like our physical appearance or our reputation or our wealth or possessions, our career, even our families. We take these things, many of which are very good things, and we turn them into the main thing in our lives, and it crowds out God. And it's not that God is so insecure that He needs to know that He's our number one. It's that He knows that we can only really be redeemed when He's our number one. And so today, I want you to think and ask yourself this question prayerfully. What is my big physical thing that is most important in my life? What is the one thing that I I fear the most losing apart from God? And I want you to be able to offer that to Him in just a few moments and say, Lord, whatever you choose to do with this, I'm offering it to you because I want you to be first. Now, we're also going to look at the cup. And the cup represents the blood of Jesus, which is the purchase of our forgiveness. The idea that that Christ shed His blood for us means we can be forgiven from all sins. Everything we've ever done, everything we might do in the future, it's all forgiven. It's all paid for. And yet, it's, it's that beautiful miracle of forgiveness. And yet, how many Christians, how many of us in this room still carry unforgiveness in our hearts? How many of us have burdens we carry, grudges we bear, people we still hate, Pain we still hold on to because someone hurt us in the past. And y'all, I'm not making light of the pain that you've experienced. I'm sure that if we went around the room and gave a testimony, there would be people who could tell stories of horrific things that have been done to them. I want you to understand something about Christian forgiveness. Forgiveness, you'll hear people say sometimes, well, I wish I could forgive, but it still hurts too bad. Or I wish I could forgive, but I'm still too angry. And it has nothing to do with what you feel. You can hurt and you can be angry and still forgive. I've also heard people say, well, I don't want to forgive this person because if I forgive them, then they're going to come back and hurt me again. Listen, forgiveness doesn't mean extending the same level of trust that you once did. For instance, if you've been abused. I want you to forgive your abuser for your sake, but I don't want you to let them abuse you again. I don't want you to let let them come back into your life so they can hurt you in that way again. That's not what forgiveness is. Let me tell you what forgiveness actually is. Forgiveness is saying, I no longer wish you harm. It's saying, I am no longer determined to make you pay for what you did to me. Instead, I will absorb the cost And I will will the good for you. I will pray for good things to happen to you. I will treat you with kindness. I will stop talking bad about you to my friends. I will stop plotting your demise. I will stop rejoicing when I see bad things happen to you. Those are all choices you make. You might still hurt in your heart. You might still be angry. You choose to do those things. And that brings freedom because it's obedience to God. So my challenge for you today, my second challenge is, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we drink that cup, I want you to offer to God whoever it is that's hurt you that you've been struggling to forgive and just say, Lord, I offer them to you and I, I just declare to you today that I forgive them. So since I know that that's heavy what I'm asking of you and I know that's probably stirred up some emotions in some of you, before we read the passage today, I want to lead you in a quick prayer. All right? So let's do that. Heavenly Father, we are people that you love, and yet we're weak and we're fallen and we miss the mark. And so we pray for your help right now as we're dealing with some hard and heavy stuff. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us this morning to be completely honest with ourselves. Show us, O Lord, what there is in our lives that competes for our allegiance with you so that we might offer it up to you today. Help us also, Lord, to see where we are carrying unforgiveness and bitterness and grudges so that we can offer those to You as well. I pray, Lord, that people today would leave this place with weight off their shoulders, feeling free because they've obeyed You. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So now finally we get to Hebrews 11, 17-22. This is our fourth week in this series. And so you know by now, if you've been to some of these messages, Hebrews 11 is not, like some people think, a sort of honorary hall of fame. It's not God listing out His favorite people. In the same way, by the way, I'm going to work this in, a man becoming a deacon is not an honorary position. There are some. I'll just say it, I'll just say it this way. There are some wonderful men, some of the best men I know in this church who aren't deacons, who don't feel called to serve as deacons, who probably never will be. So that's not what it's about. It's these four men said, I want to help in a new way. I'm already doing these other things for God. I feel called to help extend the reach and the ministry of our called staff. And so I'm going to serve as a deacon. In the same way, Hebrews 11 isn't God just saying, okay, this is my favorite person and and this is my favorite person. No, it's God saying, let's walk through the Torah, the first four books of the Bible. And let me show you some stories of people who understood what it was to live by faith. And by living by faith, here's what we've said. It means I'm not holding on to the things of this world that are passing away. That's not my treasure. That's not my goal. Instead, I'm I'm reaching forward for the things that will never go away. The things that last forever. So, with that in mind, let's pick up with verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So these are four stories of four successive generations of Israelite men, and what ties them together is redemption. They chose redemption instead of short-term happiness. So let me walk you through these real fast. So uh, first story is the story of Abraham. This is the one we know the best. It's found in Genesis 22. I can't dive deep into it except to say it's one of those stories that's very disturbing to us. God comes to Abraham and, and commands him to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah. And we always look at that and we say, man, why would God do that? That sounds like a pagan deity, something that one of the, one of the false gods would say. And what you need to understand, first of all, is God didn't actually make him offer a human sacrifice. That's not what God's into But the main thing for our purposes is to note that if Abraham had been here today and I'd asked that question, what is the physical thing that is most important to you? He would have said, oh, that's easy. That's my son, Isaac. There's no question. He's the one. I mean, I was 75 years old. I hadn't been able to have any children. Sarah and I were were infertile. And then God came and promised us a son. And then we had to wait another quarter of a century. So when that son finally came along, you better believe we were overjoyed. This boy is not just uh, precious to me because he's my son, but because he's the child of the promise. God has promised he's going to redeem the whole world through what comes out of this son's line. So, no, I don't want to give him up. That's what this story is about. It's about God saying, this is your number one thing, and I want to make sure you know that I need to be your number one thing if you're going to experience and participate in redemption. So we know the story. We know how Abraham passed the test, and he, he took this, this stack of wood and placed it on the shoulders of his son Isaac and walked him up the slopes of Mount Moriah in, in, in what would become Jerusalem. And he heard his son say these words, Father, I've got the wood and you've got the torch, but where's the knife? I mean, I mean, where's the, uh, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? It must have choked him up to hear that question, but he managed to get out the words. Well, son, God will provide a lamb. And there they are at the top of the mountain and Abraham follows the procedure to the letter and then God's voice speaks and says, stop at the last moment, stop. I don't want this. And he looks up and there is a ram with its horns caught in the thicket. And Abraham unties his son and takes that ram and offers the ram in his son's place. God has indeed provided a substitute. And that's the Gospel before Jesus ever was born. Now, here's what Hebrews 11 tells us that Genesis 22 doesn't. The reason Abraham was able to do this is because he knew that Abraham, that, that Isaac was the child of the promise. He knew, as it says again in, in verse 18, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He knew that through Isaac would be the redemption of the world. And so it says in verse 19, he figured, hey, if Isaac dies, God must be planning to bring him back. Because he's not going to kill the promise. He's not going to destroy his plan of salvation. So if if God is telling me to kill my son, then he must be planning to bring him back from the dead, even though that had never happened in human history. This is thousands of years before the resurrection of Christ. Abraham, because he was thinking about redemption and not what was convenient and easy and good and fun in the short term, he was able to obey. See where I'm going with this? The second story is about that little boy Isaac when he's an old man. Now these are imperfect figures. All of them are flawed men. Here's Isaac. Here's one of his flaws. He had a favorite son. You're not supposed to do that. When God gives you children, you're supposed to love them all equally. Isaac had twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Jacob was an absolute stranger to his dad. Jacob Jacob and Esau, I mean Jacob and Isaac could not figure each other out. But Esau he was like his dad. He was an outdoorsman. He liked to roam the countryside, hunting game. He said, I get this kid. He's my favorite. And so in his later years, knowing he only had a short time left, his eyesight's failing, Isaac says to Esau, hey, I want to bless you. I want to give you the blessing of a a prophet and a patriarch. And I'm sure he's thinking in his heart, before God tells me to bless Jacob instead, I'm going to bless Esau. That's what will make me happy, is to put the blessing on the son that I like, not the one I can't figure out. But then Jacob's mother, Rebecca and Jacob, they do a little con job, don't they? And they end up getting the blessing on, from their blind father instead of Esau. And when Esau gets home and he finds out that the blessing of the patriarch has been given to Jacob, dishonest, deceptive Jacob, He's furious. He's heartbroken. He cries out, oh, dad, don't you have a blessing for me? And here's where the faith comes in. Isaac looks at his favorite son and says, nope, I have blessed him and he will be blessed. What what Isaac is saying is, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't what made me happy in the short term. But God's will needs to be done because he knows better than I do. So yeah, son, you're going to be a great nation. But Jacob has the place in God's plan that's more significant. And we have to bless that. We have to endorse that. The next story is is much more obscure. It's the story of of Jacob when he's an old man, and it's time for him to bless his grandchildren. And Joseph, one one of Jacob's 12 sons, comes to him with the two boys Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, here's what you need to understand. In that culture, it was just accepted wisdom. Just part of life. That if you were the firstborn, especially the firstborn son, then you got the main blessing, no matter what. You you could have been the biggest dipstick on earth, but if you were the oldest, you got the main blessing. And so Joseph is trying to follow practice. He brings his sons to his father And he figures the old man might be a little fuzzy, so he makes sure to put Manasseh, his oldest, standing at his father's right hand. Whereas Ephraim, the youngest, is on the left, where he can just get a subordinate blessing. But Jacob, being not just a patriarch, but a prophet, knows no the blessing of God goes to the younger, not the older. In this case, it's Ephraim. And so he crosses his arms, so he can place the right hand of blessing on the child on his left. And Joseph says, that's not the way you do it, Dad, and tries to move his arms. But Jacob says, no, let it be. This is what God has decided. Now the last story, the last of the four, is of Joseph when he's an old man. And remember, Joseph by this point is a powerful man. He has risen through many twists and turns and ups and downs to become uh, the most powerful man next to Pharaoh himself in that part of the world. So all the children of Israel are living with him in the land of Egypt and in the little section called Goshen and they're prospering and they're multiplying and within a generation or two they're going to take over the place, it seems. But Joseph knows better. Those those children of Israel are probably thinking, this is our country now, man. We're going to run this joint. Joseph knows that there's 400 years of slavery coming up. And after that, a great exodus an event with the parting of the Red Sea and and ten plagues on the Egyptians and and miraculous food from heaven for 40 years until they get to a promised land that will be theirs. So here's what Joseph tells them. When I die, and it's going to be soon, don't bury me here. Save my bones. And on the day you leave this land, take them with you. Bury me in the land promised to Abraham. See, in all four of those stories, the common thread is, this is what makes sense to my human brain. If I just do this, that makes sense. That will make me happy. That will, that will put me in line with everybody else. But this is what God says I should do. And he's the one who's about redemption. This is the plan he has to redeem not just me, but the whole wide world. And if I want to be a part of that plan and be redeemed of myself, I will do this. And every time these four men, imperfect as they were... They chose the path of redemption and therefore they live lives of significance and joy. And that's what I'm recommending to you today. So, I want you to take this communion kit and I want you to grab that little piece of bread inside there and hold it between your thumb and forefinger. And I want you to think about what it means. That just as Abraham took a pile of wood and put it on the shoulders of his son and marched him up Mount Moriah. The world took a wooden beam and placed it on the shoulders of God's son and walked him up Mount Calvary, Mount Golgotha, just a few few minutes walk away. They marched him up that hill and there they put him to his death. See, at Mount Moriah, God said to Abraham, I won't take your son from you. But at Mount Golgotha, God said, I won't keep my son from you. And I gave you a substitute for your son, but I will offer you my son. Jesus offered up his physical body for our redemption. That's the good news. He died so we don't have to. So as we take and we eat this bread, we're saying to the Lord, Lord, take my Isaac. Whatever it is that's most important to me, I'm offering it to you. And I want you to name that thing in your mind, whether it's your career or your family or a particular person. Just say, Lord, this is it. My health, my wealth, I'm offering it to you. Whatever you choose to do with it, I want you to be number one. If that's the commitment you're offering to God today, eat this bread. Now today, we also hold this cup in our hands. As we do, we remember what it means. Remember, there was a day when the red blood of Jesus flowed down the wood of a cross and soaked into the soil on the top of that hill outside Jerusalem. That blood, that blood brought by thorns and whip and lash. And fist and nails was our salvation, was our forgiveness. We think about how Jesus was able to look down at, at these men who had just put him through hell on earth, cramming a. a, a crown of thorns onto his scalp and, and lashing his back until it was raw and nailing his hands and feet to a cross and then raising that beam up onto that pole and leaving him there. And then sitting there in front of him and just gleefully gambling for his clothes. And he's able to look down at those men and pray out loud. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Not because that's what he wanted to do. Not because that's what made him happy to do because that's what would lead to redemption. And I say to you, probably the happiest thing you'll hear all day, if He could forgive that, then there's nothing He can't forgive in you. And nothing He will not forgive in you. And in light of that incredible mercy and forgiveness, is there any sin that someone else has committed against you that you cannot and should not forgive? So, whoever they are, whatever they've done to you, as horrific as it might be, offer them to God today as you drink this cup. Now as we get ready to sing again about the Son of Suffering, about the One who is our absolute Deliverer, I want to lead you in a word of prayer I want you to get your heart right with the Lord. If that means coming forward and saying, I have never actually confessed to God that I'm a sinner in need of salvation. Today can be the day that you are born again. If it means I I just need God to give me strength to forgive this person, to obey Him. If it means I'm struggling in some other way, completely unrelated to what you're talking about, I just want my church family to pray for me. You can come forward and we will pray for you.